Hello and good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. I'm Lauren from Swansea in the United Kingdom and with me as always is... It's Brian in Buffalo, New York, US of A, the great white buffalo, so to speak, snowing. because it's snowing. And how are you, Lauren? I'm okay. Snow, snow. We are starting to see a bit of spring coming in here, so we're quite lucky the daffodils are coming up. Well, we did have spring for about two days, and then the snow started again. It's quite strange. We've been having daffodils pop their heads up since about mid-late January, which is weird. Okay, that's because you have, like, bombs in your backyard and all kinds of weirdness there. Well, yeah, I guess. Swansea's a weird little town. If you say so. I've never been, so I can't say, but I plan on going there someday because I want to see Swansea. But anyway, other than our locations, how are you, Lauren? What's going on in the world of Lauren? Not much, really. It's quiet. I mean, a quiet month. Yeah, and the month's almost over. Can you believe we're at the end of February? February is always such a tiny little month anyway, and I can't believe we're in the third third month of 2023. We're nearly through the first quarter of 2023. Ooh, that sounds weird when you say it that way. Well, if you think about it, a quarter is three months. Well, yeah, I know that. I know basic math. I'm good with like three quarters, half, but... I get confused with numbers when you start talking about like Edward the second and Henry the eighth and all that crap. Those are the numbers that freak me out. It just means like it's the third Edward that has been king or these or um the second William that has been king is just or the second Charles that's been king. Or the first <laughs> Queen Charles. That was funny. That poor newsreader. That was hilarious. It was hilarious. But you know what else is hilarious? The emails we've been getting. Actually, before we talk about emails, um, I watched the new South Park episode, the Worldwide Privacy Tour. I I have not seen it yet, but I've heard all about it. That's hilarious. I watched it with my (laughs) mum. And how how did she like it? She thought it was hilarious. I have been reading emails all week praising my jokes. Mm-hmm. That's all I want to say, Lauren. Mm-hmm. They love my jokes. Mm-hmm. For the first time in the, what, three years we've been doing this show, the audience is on my side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I even had a couple jokes sent in by listeners. Okay. Yeah, you want you want to hear one of the jokes submitted by a listener? Yes. All right, because this one isn't mine, so you'll probably laugh at it. This was sent in from Carol. She said, uh, "What do you call a hippie's wife?" I don't know. Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I did like that one. Thank you, Carol. And here's one that was sent in by someone named Dave. Not Physics Dave. We miss Physics Dave. We got to get him back on. But this was from a different Dave. He's a busy man. He's a very busy man. But Dave sent me in this one for you, Lauren. Uh, Hey, Lauren. 
Mm-hmm. You want to hear a joke about deja vu? Yeah. Want to hear a joke about deja vu? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> oh. So yeah. Can, yeah. So any other emails? We have had emails up the wazoo because people love Batman. Yeah, they do. And they've we been have... praising the Batman. We've been getting all the people sitting in with their favorite episodes of Batman are and who their favorite We've villains two were. Now of Batman, pretty much. Yeah, but a lot of Batman emails, and we keep getting emails about bringing back on the amazing Chris Shelton, uh, the the expert on destructive cults and Scientology. So guess what we did, Lauren? We did. We got him back on. We got him back on. He's going to be on tonight. We're going to have a lot of fun talking to Chris because we love Chris. Chris is such a great guy. But uh, did I ever tell you about the time I was addicted to the hokey pokey? Did you find out what it was all about? No, but I did eventually turn myself around. (laughs) (laughs) Lauren, did you just laugh at one of my jokes? Yeah, I did. Wow. Lauren's, I think Lauren's hit the wine a little early tonight, folks. Lauren's laughing at my jokes. I don't drink wine, remember? I'm a gin lady. Yeah, she said, well, see, gin makes me mean. Any alcohol makes me happy and friendly, except gin turns me into like a real meanie. I thought that was, um... London hot dogs. (laughs) London hot dogs make me sick. Folks, our PSA of the week. People love my PSAs of the week. If you're ever in London, don't eat a hot dog. That's my PSA of the week. We've also been getting comments. And I didn't really want to bring this up because I know you get upset when I bring up bathroom talk. Oh, God. But we have gotten comments about the signs in the university bathroom explaining how to use them. That's a true story. And people are demanding pictures, Lauren, so you have to sneak back on campus and get pictures of these. I then, do you remember when I said, what, if you sit backwards, you could put your tray on the, on the back of the bowl and, and eat while you're pooping? Yeah, that's disgusting. Well, apparently, I wasn't the only genius that thought about this, because that's a TikTok trend. That is disgusting. TikTok is is disgusting. Well, I didn't post one on TikTok. I'm just saying, I thought I was a genius for coming up with that idea. But no, apparently it's out there. They're doing this. What would be a good meal to eat on the crapper? Nothing. No, no. I mean, like, soup wouldn't be good, but, you know, maybe like nachos or something. No? No, Brian. All right. How about another joke? Okay. So this turtle's crossing the road, right? And he gets mugged by two snails. Fucking snails. They mug the turtle. Turtle calls the police. The police ask him what happened. He says, I don't know what happened so fast. (laughs) Aww. All right, no more jokes, no more jokes. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited that Chris Shelton's coming back on tonight, Lauren, because 
I love Chris, and I'm going to give Chris a present. Chris goes all over the place on podcasts and shows, and he's an expert on destructive cults and their behavior. And, of course, you know, our audience wants to hear that, too, so we're going to talk about that. But I happen to know Chris is a huge pop culture guy with the Marvelverse and Star Wars, so I'm going to bring that up, and I'm going to let him talk about that. What do you think about that, Lauren? That'll be good. Isn't that nice of me? Yes, because it must be hard talking about something that you've been through over and over again. Yeah, and people have other interests, so I want to see if he wants to talk about some other stuff. Maybe, you know, let his hair down for a show and have fun. Plus, I know you, you love all that stuff, too, so. I do. I know. You do. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. You, you you said before when you grew up you weren't a big comic book girl. I mean, they weren't a big deal there in Swansea. No. When did the pop culture, was it just the Marvel movies that made it explode in your area? Or was there like a big fan base for Comic-Cons before? No, the, their first Comic-Cons were in Manchester in the early 2000s. So I was in university then and I got to go to them. So I was in university in Sheffield, so it was only like an hour or so away by train to get to the Comic-Con. You were in university learning how to use the toilet with visual instructions. No, that came after. And I'm shifting through papers here because there were some other things I wanted to mention. Oh, goodness, no. No, it's about the show. It's good stuff, Lauren. It's not about the bathroom buddy. But if you are looking for, uh, well, it's past Valentine's Day, so I can't send get the one you love a bathroom buddy. But... What's the next holiday where people exchange gifts, Lauren? Mother's Day? Yeah. But what's the perfect gift for Mother's Day? Say I love you with a bathroom buddy. Well, it's Mother's Day in the UK. You have it at a different time than we do. Yeah. You know, it was President's Day the other day. You could have celebrated President's Day with a bathroom buddy. (laughs) You can really celebrate anything with a bathroom buddy. but Oh, yeah, here it is. We have been getting a lot of requests to do another show about old-time wrestling. <clears throat> As you know, I didn't think the our audience would like latch onto that, but every time we've done a show on that, they loved it. So I have gathered a roundtable of experts, and uh, maybe next week there'll be another old-time wrestling show. What do you think about that, Lauren? That will be good. Yeah, I got uh, I got our good friend Terry Sullivan coming back. Of course, the legendary Nikita Brezhnikov's going to be on, and uh, I've I've managed to reel in the one and only Rodney West, uh, one of the West brothers from Pro Wrestling Inside and Out that were part of the Georgia territory. They're going to be on hopefully next week, and we'll we'll do some old time wrestling talk. But I want to get to Chris Shelton, so I need you to clear your throat <coughs> and give me a good one, Lauren. Today in history. Ooh, that was a real good one. Yeah. So, my today in history comes from 1173. And it is on the 21st of February, 1173, that Pope Alexander III canonizes Thomas Beckett, Archbishop of Canterbury. Yes, that turbulent priest became a saint. In 1173. You know, I'm glad you went there because 
I think anybody can become a saint if they got the good publicist behind them. Um, well, I mean, it's only the Catholic Church that canonizes. So they have stopped now. They have stopped asking for miracles because they're not happening as much as as much as they used to. They've gotten lazy with the miracles. Well, I mean, all the miracles were just sheer luck. I don't know. You know what a miracle is? The bathroom buddy. <laughs> is the miracle invention of the of the 21st century. But if you're interested... Yes, it has something to do with the butt. It does. But I was going to talk about um, Thomas Beckett and say that if you are interested in his life, you can still go and visit his shrine at um, Canterbury Cathedral because he was the Archbishop of Canterbury and he was very good at his job that the king in a fit of um, annoyance allegedly said who will rid me of this turbulent priest and then some knights who were a bit tipsy took him literally and went and murdered him well that's kind of dick yeah a little bit well you think that's dick wait till you hear my day in history all right go ahead then you're going to love this one. This one I, I thought of just for you, Lauren, because it's a badass woman of history. Today in history, February 21st, 1431, was the first day of interrogation of Joan of Arc. Ah, uh, yes. Poor Joan. They, 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 they liked her when she was helpful, but when things started going a bit wrong, that's when they started to doubt her. So speaking of knights and, you know, People getting, like, killed and all that garbage. Joan's right there, too. She is, indeed. Here's my thing. It was the first day of interrogation. What do you think the first line of questioning was for Joan? Um, I, I have no idea. Where did you get those clothes? Who is of Ark? <laughs> um, well, it depends. Being a bit serious, it depends how they um, questioned her. They wouldn't have... Well, I don't think they'd have tortured a woman. Oh, I, I think they tortured a woman. Um, no, there were laws against it, especially in um, in England. There were laws against torturing a woman. Yeah, but didn't they say she was like a heretic? Still, you didn't torture women. Yeah, well. It was illegal. She would have been tried by the church courts, and they didn't tend to use um, torture. Yeah. They didn't torture women, and the U.S. never used chemical weapons in Vietnam, and we never tortured people at Guantanamo. Sure, Lauren, just keep leaving um, No, no, no. Uh, well, the church courts didn't have the ability. They didn't have the equipment, except as the Spanish Inquisition, which was an extension of the courts rather than, yeah, but that was its own little unit. And I don't think she was tried. I don't think she was taught. I don't think she was questioned by the Inquisition. I think that's a bit too early for the Inquisition. I think I'm we should do a show on Joan of Arc. Yeah, but I don't know if she'd have been tortured. Like she may have been beaten up, but that would have been independent of the of the questioning. Because if, if it was, yeah, because I can only talk of the example of, of England, but the church courts had no capacity to torture you apart from threatening your mortal soul which back then would have been a massive deal yeah they didn't torture they just roughed her up a bit but again that wouldn't have been the people that were leading 
the questioning, that would have been the guards that they employed or some, or, you know, outside influences. Torture, torture was a political tool, not an, easy, an ecclesiastical tool, because, again, there would have been the moral repercussions for the person that did the torturing from a from a religious standpoint. I, I, I say we got to. Uh, that's what we're going to concentrate on the next few days, both of us. Let's try to find a good Joan of Arc expert, and we'll do a show on Joan, because that it is such a fascinating study in history. Yeah. And we haven't done, like, a deep dive into a particular person in a long time on this show. And, like, I think the last time we did was when we did Tesla. Yes. And not not uh, not such a long time before that, but Houdini. Yeah, Houdini, and before that we did uh, Rasputin. Yes, and we've done Groucho Marx as well, the Marx Brothers. And Ernie Kovacs. Yes. Yeah, let's do a Joan of Arc episode soon. What do you th- What do you say? I say yes. All right. Well, on that note, I'm so excited because I get to bring on Chris Shelton soon, Lawrence. So, do you want to fire up the magic interview box? I would indeed. It's the magic interview box. All right, and why don't you flip the switch? All right, Lauren, I am so excited about tonight's episode because we've got the returning champion, our audience favorite. I don't want to call him a guru because that almost sounds like he's a cult leader, but the one and only Chris Shelton has returned back by popular demand. And before I can even get going and say hi to Chris, Lauren is going to knock me off to the side, hip check me. And jump in with a question. So, Lauren, please go right ahead. So, my question is, 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 is I'd like to know a bit more about the background of Leah Remini's accusations about the Scientology leader's missing wife. Because I know that she is, you know, people haven't seen this woman for more the, over two decades. But all the official um, communication and the communication from the police is that this woman is safe and well and there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, it's not just Leah Remini that's saying it, it's other people that are saying it. And it's just looking at this as as somebody that doesn't live in America, it's quite bizarre and it's <laughs> quite worrying. Because where is this woman? And why hasn't she just come out and says, No, I'm fine. I just don't want to be in the public eye. I'm okay. Right. It's an interesting story. And uh, the short version, I guess, would be that Leah and uh, Shelley Miscavige is the one you're talking about. She's the wife of David Miscavige, the leader of Scientology. And she has been his wife since the late 1970s or early 80s, I believe. And um, and they were hardcore and remain, you know, hardcore Scientologists and David Miscavige, of course, runs Scientology. Up until the early 2000s, Shelley was right by his side. And she was also friends with Leah Remini as when Leah was a Scientologist. So they had a relationship of some kind and Leah felt close to her. Well, when Tom Cruise got married in Italy, uh, Leah wasn't there. David Man- David Miscavige was Tom Cruise's best man at that wedding. So there were other Scientology executives there, not just David, but the, his inner circle, other senior execs of Scientology, but no Shelley. So Leah being Leah, and even as a Scientologist being Leah, 
she looked around and said, where's Shelly? Where's my friend? Where's where's my you know, where's my girlfriend here? Right. What's what's up? And the response that she got was what shocked her, not Shelly's absence. The shocking statement to her by one of the Scientology executives at the time who has since left the Sea Org and no longer working for Scientology was that she didn't have the rank to ask where Shelly was. How dare you? You don't have the rank to ask that question. And Leah, of course, was a little put off by the what? What's this about now? And that's actually the trigger point that that started her path of questioning what the hell was going on around her that one of her friends and, and she's an important Scientology VIP. Leah is she's not nobody. So here she is asking a very obvious and, and what she thought important question. And nobody would tell her a thing. No one. No one knew where Shelly was. And so it became this persisting problem for her. Well, she was kind of dragged through the mill over that and uh, had to pay a lot of money for a lot of what they call Scientology security checking or confessionals. It's a confession culture there. And they were demanding her secrets and her crimes. And what was it that was motivating Leah to be this troublesome, bothersome person and she didn't really want to put up with that. So she uh, that was the beginning of the end for her. And she eventually, within a couple of years, well, a few years, actually, got herself extricated and her entire family extricated from Scientology. And they escaped. Same time I did in uh, 2012-13. And then Leah filed a missing persons report on Shelley Miscavige because she was like, it's been years. I still haven't seen her. I still don't have an answer to the question. Where's my friend? Where is Shelly? And that was when the LAPD made whatever calls they did. We really have no idea what they did because they won't say. But they came back with Shelly's fine and there's no missing persons problem and everything's fine. But provided absolutely no details of any kind as to where she was, how they had determined that she was okay. Nothing. There having been... A long history of incidents with the LAPD and Scientology being rather cozy with one another, Leah was suspicious, and she made this a public issue, and she brought this out in the open as one of the first things she did. And she started, she is the one who began the hashtag, where is Shelly campaign, and that is what has captured a lot of public interest and attention in Scientology is, where the hell is the leader's wife? Why hasn't anybody seen her since 2007? What's going on here? No public appearances. Nothing. She's just been persona non-nothing. Uh, and so this has become a bit of a rallying cry for the ex-Scientology community to join with the public who don't know anything about Scientology but certainly can understand this much and go, what the hell? And to this day, David Miscavige has not produced Shelley Miscavige, and no one knows where she is or what the hell is going on. Uh, it appears pretty clear that it's a marriage in name only at this point. Miscavige isn't saying anything about it and doesn't feel any degree of obligation to do so. He completely ignores this entire thing. And because he is so um, media cowardly, he doesn't talk to any media of any kind for any reason anymore. He's avoided any sharp and pointed questions to him about this. Not one Scientologist is ever going to ask him about this because they don't have the rank. 
<laughs> and that's kind of how it goes in that world is he is the he is the leader and nobody questions him. So the the reason it persists is because the question has not been adequately answered. And the truth is, I mean, from my perspective, at least, it's it's entirely possible. Shelley Miscavige has no idea that she is even a public hashtag or knowledge of that. I was going to say, can I play devil's advocate? And I don't want to be the the defender of Miscavige because I I don't want him to come across that, but I want to be fair. You know, it's possible that he didn't want to take her to Italy. Maybe he wanted to have a little fun. You know, who wants to take her? I I should say there are, there are, let me give you a couple more factoids on this. Um, People in the know who have left Scientology, Mike Rinder, for example, of course, obviously knew her well, worked with her for years. They were both on the boat with Hubbard all the way back when they were kids. So he has a long-term knowledge and relationship with Shelley up until she disappeared. And there was a point where she disappeared. Uh, Even in the Scientology world, she was sent somewhere and nobody knows exactly where. We believe we know now, Tony Ortega has reported on this, and we believe she is at a secret location the the Church of Scientology keeps in the mountains outside uh, up in Lake Arrowhead in California, just a couple hours outside of L.A. There's reason to believe and there's credible uh, public sightings of someone who looked an awful lot like her. There have been two reports of that. Um, since this disappearance, since this disappearing act. But the reason she disappeared is because she really pissed Miscavige off. He, he ordered some things to be done that were kind of impossible to do. And she went ahead and did them anyway and got it done. And he came back and was furious about this. And somehow those dots connect to her disappearing. And that's kind of about as much substance as we have, but we do have eyewitness accounts that there was an argument that Miscavige was pissed, that she was in fear, uh, fearful of him and the repercussions or consequences of that. And now she's disappeared and we have these public, you know, credible public sightings. So, you know, so that's why I say she's probably been sent somewhere where she's off anybody's radar and nobody really knows anything about what she's up to, and they can just kind of keep her there, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. So, like I said, devil's advocate, marital problems. It happens. He's the figurehead. He's the face. It's not a good public look to say me and my wife are fighting and getting divorced. She doesn't want to appear in the public anymore. Fine, go away. Go to where you want, where you don't have to face the public anymore. You live your life. I live my life. She's not going to talk to Leah once Leah starts questioning because Shelley is a devoted Scientologist, and Leah is at that point, what? what's the term? Oh, a suppressive person. A suppressive person. Yeah. So even if they were friends and had a 30-year relationship, once she's a suppressive person, she's not going to talk to her. No mystery there. And I kind of want to give them the benefit of the doubt that, you know, divorce divorce or marital problems would just look bad for the figure, although it didn't hurt Hubbard at all because he had, what, three wives? Yeah, yeah, he did. At it's... It's a kind and gentle interpretation of the events, but unfortunately, knowing Miscavige's violent streaks and history of literally beating up on people in vicious ways, I'm not talking about little slapping. I'm talking about full-on assault. It's worrisome 
It's very worrisome. And the public appearances that we do have of her, the public sightings, I should say, of her uh, are with escorts. Uh, in other words, she was not alone. She was being guarded and uh, she didn't look very good. So we are concerned about her in terms of her actual health and mental well-being. And knowing what I know about Scientology's mental you know, waterboarding techniques, um, there is good reason to be concerned about her mental health, especially when she's been ensconced away in some mountain hideaway for well over a decade. These are worrisome things, but we we are struggling with the fact that we have no real hard facts on her state of mind or condition because Scientology, despite this ongoing years-long campaign of where is Shelley, refuses to even acknowledge the question, much less answer it. And the LAPD has been more than useless in this regard, and that's where the frustration on our part comes from. It becomes a, it has become a rallying cry, really. It's become a, a thing to, you know, to bring awareness to the abuses of Scientology in a very easy to understand way for for people who have no familiarity with it. Well, it's going to shock y'all when she comes out and publicly as a Unitarian. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kidding. We wish her well. We hope she's okay. We hope there's nothing weird or fishy going on. Like you said, we have no facts, just speculation. I, I hate to like condemn people on speculation, even though, like you said. Oh, I've got history, plenty of other evidence to condemn Miscavige on besides this. So, Yeah, uh, I got a problem with Miscavige. Yeah, we got plenty of other things we can point to than Shelley. For and me, I don't want to bash other than the fact that he should really go to the public more because some of his representatives do a horrible job. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> you know, at least when Rinder was doing it, he was good at it. Well, Rinder was the last one who was really good at it. Tommy Davis was the next in line and he failed miserably and didn't even last more than a couple of years. And he's the one who's now out. He's the one. Tommy Davis is the one who told Leah, you don't have the rank. And, you know, Tommy Davis has been caught out, uh, you know, was caught out many, many times and many, many blatant lies about Scientology. He was not anywhere near as smooth as Mike Rinder was when he was in uh, defending Scientology. And now, of course, Mike is one of its most successful detractors. Yeah, you know why? Because of fucking Rinder's accent. <laughs> all it is. And he yeah, might be listening exactly. to this if you do. Hi, Mike. I've never gotten to talk to you. I'd love to sometime. But it's that smooth fucking accent. It's <laughs> pretty get away with it. It's, I got to admit, it's, it's, it's there. That's true. Well, you know, since we last spoke, there was an interesting, because we'll get back to Scientology. Trust me on that one. <laughs> but. You are, you know, like I've said before, you're a hero to me because you have dedicated your life since leaving this to helping others not only recognize but get out of and help loved ones understand destructive cults. Yeah. And there was a big documentary that just dropped on Hulu. People, if you if you have Hulu, go check it out. It's called Stolen Youth. You just did a great show on it where you got to interview the director. And one of the survivors. Yeah, that was, real, survivors. that was a real opportunity for me. I was very happy to be given that. So obviously you watched it. You've oh, yeah. 
when they got to the point where they said he had a lock on the refrigerator door, that's when I'm out. You could suck me into like any cult you want, but the moment he puts a lock on the refrigerator, fuck it, I'm out the door. How did that not trigger people to say, you know, I should really get out of here? Boiling frog phenomenon. Well, yeah, I'd boil a frog if the refrigerator was locked. Yeah, well, at, but look at the context in which that was done. You're receiving an awful lot of facts in a in a, not a random order, but there's a lot of context that uh, because of time couldn't be given. Here you have a bunch of college students who had already assumed to a cult of personality around Larry Ray. Then he institutes this mandatory exercise program. We're all going to get in shape. We're all going to be fit. We're all going to do this. They're doing 500 push-ups a day or some crazy nonsense. And so a lock on the fridge at that point becomes part of that program and a necessary aspect of control to discipline you evil little kids who can't keep your, you know, mitts out of the, uh, you know, out of the cookie jar, right? And and when you're gradually, and this is a real lesson for people, is it's because it, it, they they miss it because it's so slow. It can take months, even years, to develop that level of control over somebody. But when you dedicate yourself, as Larry Ray did, to a campaign of coercive control, you can well, arrive at places like that. Well, that's what I wanted to to ask you: is that this. He really formed that bond and got the control over these people in just a matter of months. Yeah. Even though a couple of the people in the house called him out on the bullshit right away. Mm -hmm. So there were people with doubts and even telling their friends, dude, this fucking dude's playing with your head. And yet he was still able to do it in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. Was it just due to... You know, their age and inexperience, you think? No, 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 no. Don't don't even go there. What we have here is not is not a a problem with those kids. They were regular, normal kids. What we young. That's that's the thing. They were young. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and they were in a changed environment where there was some uncertainty and some unbalance and freedom and, you know, limitless freedom can itself be a prison. Um, but the reason I said don't go there is because I, I don't want to in any way um, put them on the on the chopping block on this because you have to also acknowledge another part of this picture. Larry Ray, the cult leader here, and L. Ron Hubbard, David Miscavige, these kinds of people, um, there's a skill, and it's a very unique skill. And not everybody has this skill or even thinks to develop it or even tries to because it's a rather nefarious skill. And it is the ability to have somebody come into your space or come into your in contact with you. And even if they are hostile to you, you have the ability to turn that on them. It's a skill. It's a it's a communication and authority skill where you can take any argument or anybody who comes at you and you can turn it on them in such a way that when that person walks out of that conversation with you, and it's usually done one-on-one, it's very rarely done in the presence of others, but once they become super skilled at it, they can do it in a group setting too, is that person will be convinced that not only were you not wrong, but they were wrong for even doubting you or bringing it to you in the first place. 
And it's kind of amazing how good some people can get at that. And I and I have to stress that because it's something Larry Ray has. And it's even to the point where they said in the documentary, he's not really accurately diagnosable. No, because he has that skill to manipulate any situation to his advantage, no matter what situation he finds himself in, you can't ever get to the actual person. He won't let you get to him. And that's the predator. That's exactly the personality type I talk about when I talk about predators. Yeah, and I wasn't trying to throw the kids under the bus or blame them. What I was saying is you know, the they audience, were 18. I know, I know you're not trying to do that. Yeah, away from home for the first time, 18, vulnerable. That's right. Probably scared. Yep. And here's this authority figure comes along, seeming to spout wisdom. Although I'm, And also primed before he even got there by his daughter. Remember by that? the daughter, yeah. Right? She was talking him up. He's so great. He's so wonderful. He was wrongly accused, wrongly imprisoned. All this, you know, priming of this guy. Were you shocked, and I was, that he kept his cult so small? He didn't try to expand it and make it bigger. He was perfectly satisfied with it just being that house of those kids. Well, that's where it's kind of interesting because there was no real dogma there. It was just the cult of Larry. Yeah, he was using sex and and physical, uh, you know, gaslighting to basically keep them under control. But he never provided anything bigger for them to believe in than that. Other than his own diagnosis of them and he can help them. Exactly. Had he done that, had he taken that additional step, he could have built something bigger than that. But he kind of for whatever reason, and this is really where we run into walls and trying to figure out, well, what were the motivations? He'll never tell you. He'll never be honest with people about this. So we will never really know what was it he was trying to do. But clearly he was not as successful at keeping the wide-eyed, worshipful days that he wanted to be. He had to keep gaslighting them, keep you know sleep-depriving them, and keep working on them. And when you do it the way he was doing it, you destroy minds. You don't build them up. You don't inspire them. You just destroy them. And so it was kind of nothing but the negative. And that's, you know, and then there was a sort of faux, you know, mission of protect Larry and there are bad forces out to get Larry and this kind of conspiratorial stuff. But if you don't inspire as well as hurt, you can't build something. And that's what he failed to do. I know what his end goal was. His end goal was to eat the majority of the leftovers because the motherfucker locked the fridge. (laughs) That that's not getting past me. Right. You absolutely nailed it. Yep. That's what it was. (laughs) That's what it was. No one gets the leftover pizza, but Larry. That's right. Well, you look at the guy, he's huge, you know, so he's, he's yeah. a stocky guy. So he was clearly eating a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, folks, it's on Hulu, Stolen Youth. Go check it out um, and then listen to Chris's podcast on it. Uh, unbelievable. Fantastic story. Um, the only problem is, though, we don't get Hulu in the UK. So we probably might come on Disney Plus because Disney Plus has been getting a lot of Hulu. 
Okay. You can also find, I don't know if you all get um, Peacock in the UK, the BBC streaming service, but they also have a parallel. I haven't watched it, but there is a parallel documentary on on Peacock about the exact same Sarah Lawrence uh, situation. Now we got to go back to Scientology because we got questions and questions from last time you were on. Sure. A lot of them I just threw out because they were like, you know, like I got a, I got an email yesterday saying, hey, all these things being shot down over Lake Huron in Alaska is Xenu flying them. Yeah. <laughs> I saw <laughs> so we can skip those because he is. But the one I liked was L. Ron Hubbard came from a military background. Yep. He formed the Sea Org very much like the military. Mm-hmm. What was his take on Scientologists actually volunteering for real military service oh that's an interesting question actually because he didn't really talk about it much other than to sort of decry war and violence um he wasn't a pacifist by any stretch of the imagination but one of the key goals or or um what is the how do they put this i'm all the mantras uh you know are slowly fading over time but the um the goals of Scientology are a world, right, without war, without insanity, and without criminality, where honest beings have rights and can, you know, people can rise to greater heights and all that. But that war thing is kind of important. A lot of Scientologists are really pretty anti-war, and that makes them rather anti-military. But, you know, there's plenty of people who have military experience or even active service who get involved in Scientology or Dianetics. It's not that blatant in your face you know we don't want you here kind of thing hubbard was never really uh clear one way or the other on that on that issue yeah i wonder like someone like you who grew up in scientology at at 18 did you have any desire to join the service you know a lot of kids at 18 think about it yeah I I, i thought about it i wanted to fly um, I was thinking about, you know, maybe helicopters or jets or something, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Tom Cruise, Top Gun, we know. Exactly, right? But I don't have the eyesight for that, so that was never really going to be a thing. And then they recruited me to join staff, and that that, that recruitment, um, those interviews, which took days, um, were all about how this is the most important thing in the world, far beyond anything else you could be doing. And L. Ron Hubbard pretty much went on that page. His statements on Scientology are crystal clear. It's 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 the one thing that is senior to all of life itself is Scientology. So, you know, you know, which is funny because even though much of it is fabricated, L. Ron Hubbard was always extremely proud of his military record. <laughs> his fabricated one. It yes. was very fabricated, but right. he, he didn't have anything about it all the so. time. What's that? He would always brag about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Constantly. Well, and, and again, you know, this was he was lecturing initially in 19 in the 1950s and 60s and the 1950s were post-war America. I mean, if you weren't a vet who had gone and served and served admirably and honorably and heroically, you were shit. Right. You were somebody who nobody really like what? You didn't go fight. What What the hell's wrong with you? Right. Like it was a very, very, very different time. And Hubbard, you know, wanted all that, you know, it was stolen valor is what Hubbard engaged in. It's actual crime now. But he he claimed all kinds of things uh, were true about his experiences that 
that didn't have a shred of 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 truth or factualness to it. No, there are some fun ones too, like um, his, his bombing campaign. Yeah, yeah, where he shelled that uh, that that island off the coast of Mexico. Yeah, uh, and up in Portland when he was so you know pursuing a Japanese subs. Ha ha ha. Turned out he was uh, he was mining a uh, depth charging a um, a magnetic ore uh, you know body or something like that. It was ridiculous. Hey, but again, to his defense, to play devil's advocate, he was an officer. Well, he made it to the officer corps. Sure, he yeah. was educated. He was you know he he was considered he, he wanted to be military intelligence. That's why he went that route. But he didn't have the credibility, the uh, integrity, or the record to get himself there. That's why he kept getting bounced around a bit. And then he wanted to be a commander, and he ended up in command of a boat. He he got himself there, and within a few months, he was removed from command permanently. And he created for himself an incredibly poor reputation in the military. They They were not at all impressed with him. Yeah, but then he commanded his own boat for many years. Yeah, in the Sea Org. That's right. So he got back at them. That's right. That That's exactly what he did. Yeah. He got back at them. Another interesting question we got was, he was such a prolific writer. Yep. And like you said on the last episode, in fact, this is what sent the question, that he is in Guinness for the most translated works. Yep. Once he totally formed Scientology... And he dedicated his life to that. Was he still writing fiction? A little bit, yeah, yeah. He wrote some stories in the fifties, and then he um, then he didn't do much of anything in terms of writing fiction stories until 1980 when he produced Battlefield Earth, and then he produced the ten volume Mission Earth series. And how much of that might or might not have been ghost written is anybody's guess. There are accusations that it was ghost written. Mission Earth is pretty clearly his, or sorry, Battlefield Earth is pretty clearly his. The dialogue is campy enough and the story is silly enough that it's, that it matches up with Hubbard's earlier works. Um, and it's a, and, and Battlefield Earth is a big book and there's a lot of story in there and some of it's not bad and some of it's complete shit and it's, you know, kind of all over the place. So do you remember, well, you, you Lauren won't remember this cause she, she's a wee young lass, but do you remember when we were kids and, you know, they had the 99 cent, you get 10 records uh, for a penny, and then you're obligated to buy. And they had one for book clubs, too. Yep. And I accidentally got Battlefield Earth because I thought I was checking off Frank Herbert when I hit Elron Hubbard. Ah, okay. So I was trying to order one of the Dune books, but I ended up getting Battlefield Earth. I got about a third of the way through it. I couldn't finish it. Oh, Interesting. Interesting. My best friend in high school who had nothing to do with Scientology at all thought thought it was one of his favorite sci-fi books. And I've met a few people over the years who were very impressed by Battlefield Earth. But after um, and for a long time, I defended it as a good book until I reread it and saw some of the weird Scientology stuff in it. And I was like, yeah, OK, so it's, uh, my problem with it was everything theme in the book was done better by someone else yeah exactly Amongst and every other. plot point and thing i would get i'm like well okay well asimov did that better oh and okay you know philip k dick did that better That's you know <laughs> but hubbard's attempts at social commentary are quite sad really 
compared to the greats, compared to the, the real classics. I mean, when you compare Hubbard's writing, not, you know, in style and substance and, and structure to an Asimov or a Heinlein or a, a Bradbury, it, it it's just not even in the same league. You know? No. Now, I have read a lot of Hubbard's pulp writings. Mm-hmm. I was really into reading pulp fiction when I was a kid and into my teens and I would read anything I could get my hands on for like, you know, you'd get a box of books at the back of used bookstores of like 1940s pulp books. It was great. So I read tons of that. Some were actually pretty good. I'm going to give him credit. Some of his stories were pretty good. Not the best written, but they were some pretty good stories. Now, Stephen King has praised one of his books called fear, which is sort of a horror psychological horror story. And I thought it was overblown. Even when I was in Scientology, I didn't really like it. And I was I grew up on Stephen King. I was a complete horror buff. Um, Dean Koontz, Stephen King, Robert McCammon. I mean, I was I was all about those guys. And Hubbard really didn't compare very well, even in my own mind at the time to that. But Stephen King has praised fear as a good psychological yarn. And another book he wrote whose name is eluding me right now. It was a dystopian work about leadership. Um, I used to really like that book, too, until I kind of came out of the Ayn Rand headspace (laughs) (laughs) and realized that these people really don't know what the hell they're talking about. And that was um, and that was uh, Final Blackout. That was the name of the book, Final Blackout. And one more question we got in about his writing how much of his back catalog of fiction did he own the rights to? All of it, as far as I know. Really? I mean, as far as I can tell, they still get royalties on all that stuff. To this day, Scientology has a subunit, or or a, it's, technically it's a separate corporation, but it is uh, manned only by Scientologists um, that act as his literary agent. And own all the rights to all of those stories and have converted them into audiobooks and tried to popularize Hubbard as a writer. Not not they don't they don't touch any of the Scientology stuff. They just focus on they'll go to sci-fi conventions and comic cons and stuff like that and try to promote Hubbard's work as a fiction writer. Well, Forey Ackerman got him a good deal on some of those books he did then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs of the royalties and ownership and copyrights and stuff. But, uh, you know, if they need if if it wasn't Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard had plenty of money to buy back the rights to his stories, if that's what they wanted. Yeah, that's true. They have those. I I, I think they do. Now, when you were in Scientology, I know you're all encouraged to buy his books over and over and over again were you encouraged to buy those too were you all encouraged to buy the pulp fictions and the uh oh yeah yeah i hated his fiction though so i, I wasn't going to do it but <laughs> you didn't admit that though well no i could say i could say certain things about his fiction even when i was in um you know i just i i didn't make a big deal about it i didn't walk around like complaining about it to people but if it ever came up i was like nah, it's not really my thing and I wasn't alone in that. A lot of people, you know, read some of his fiction stuff and were just like, I don't like this. So, you know, that that wasn't the price of entry into Scientology. What you could never disagree with were his nonfiction works. Those were the things that were sacrosanct. 
Oh, well, of course. Obviously. Come on. Let's face yeah. it. Um, as a Scientologist, this is my own question now. We're, we're ignoring the audience. Screw them. They're gone. Okay. So, <laughs> bye, audience. <laughs> Bye-bye. Um, but st- please stay listening. When a lot of cults use tactics like love bombing and, you know, it, it doesn't seem that that's a Scientology. It's almost like it's just a pure self, self-help program to begin with. Oh, no, there's all kinds of love bombing going on in Scientology. Really? Because all you hear are like the horror stories about how people are treated. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I've talked about this at great length, actually, on my channel. The, the, the love bombing is very, very vital at the beginning stages, especially. It's all about um, – I mean, eventually, it's all about this process that we call trauma bonding, um, where you are, are alternating punishment and reward, punishment and reward. And there has to be reward. There has to be good before there's bad. Otherwise, people won't stick around. If it's just punishment, people are like, I don't want any of this, and they turn around and walk out. So you've got to give them dopamine hits. You've got to give them euphoric experiences, and that's the positives that entice and convince people that this stuff works and that it's worth investing their time and money in. And that's always at the beginning. So when you first get in there – they are it's it can be subtle though right we talk about it as love bombing but it's really just appreciation and ego boosting so for example you get in there and you're taking a personality test and you're getting your results and they'll tell you you know just between you and me just the fact that you walked in here indicates you're the top 1% of the population because you're curious about yourself and most people aren't and that's a problem and you're actually aware enough to realize that we might have something for you because the fact of the matter is we do. So good on you for walking in here and even doing this, right? Validate, validate, validate them, right? Boost that ego any way you can. That's subtle, but it's still what we classify as love bombing, right? It's ego boosting. So all from the very beginning, they're 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 doing that to you. And when I was recruited for staff, like I said, it took a couple days. Well, the reason it took a couple days is because they would pump me up. I'm 17 years old. I'm a high school graduate, just finished high school, and they're telling me that I am one of the most aware, able, exciting people on the planet. But don't all 17 year olds think that anyway? I sure as hell didn't. I was bullied and a nerd and a geeky guy, always had my head in a book. I was the opposite of cool in school. So for this group of adults, real you know, full-on like life experience, they got kids, they've lived life, and they're sitting me down, and they're talking to me respectfully with admiration about how amazing I am and how much potential I have. I was I was totally blown away by that. Nobody had ever talked to me like that before. Not outside my parents, of course, you know, who loved me and 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 boosted me, but nobody else did. And the weird thing about this was this was after two years of doing Scientology services. So I was kind of ginned into how Scientology actually works. And I hadn't yet done the billion year contract, all that crazy nonsense that was to come later. But at this t- point in time. Their ego boosting the hell out of me, and then I go home, and my parents were not really down with me being on staff. They wanted me to do Scientology, but they didn't want me to work for the church. 
And so they were like, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. And I was like, it's the best idea. What are you talking about? They're telling me I'm going to save the world. Of course I need to do this. And they're like, no, that's not really what's going on. And I was like, oh, you people don't know what you're talking about. And I'd go back down to the church and get more love bombing, right? More ego boosting. If your parents knew that that's not what was going on, why were they still a part of the organization? Well, there's a difference between the the organization of Scientology and the philosophy and technology of Scientology. But they believed what the organization was doing was not what they claimed. No, no, Yet- no, 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 no. It wasn't quite that nefarious. They didn't have a nefarious view of the church. They had already worked for the church. So they just didn't like the experience of no, the work. No, they knew it was long hours, hard work, no pay. And they knew I was 17 years old. When they had gotten involved in Scientology, they were already adults. They already had jobs. They already had a life. And I didn't. I was just starting my life. And they were like, we don't want this for you. We think you could do other things. You'll still do Scientology. That was never the question. It would be the difference between, you know, joining the priesthood being versus being a Catholic. You're never questioning being a Catholic. <laughs> You're questioning whether the guy should join the priesthood or not, right? It's like, hey, hold on here. Let's think about this. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want to think about this. This is exactly what I need to do. And I would come home with this wild-eyed stare, you know. Oh, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to save the world. And they were like, okay, calm down. It's not quite that exciting. I was like, oh, you guys are the bad guys. You guys are the (laughs) ones telling me not to do this. And – of course, this was aided by the fact that I was 17 and finally had a chance to rebel against my parents. Right. So Scientology, you know, was really in the in the um, had the advantage in that situation. I was just going to say that it is very similar to like um, you have a Christian family and then um, somebody goes, I want to be a nun or I want to be a priest or yep. a vicar. And then the family like, well, we want you to be a Christian, but we 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 think that you could have another life. We we don't really want you to get that. That's right. Yeah. yeah, Lawrence says that, but Lauren's the bell ringer. Literally. Aren't you, Lauren? Well, yeah, but I don't work for the church. That's a voluntary thing. Well, that's uh, very different. Well, yeah. yeah, it's all the work with no none of the pay. Right. It's fun. Well, they were promising me all the pay, but my parents knew. And, and you know, to their credit, they ended up supporting me for the first year I was there because I wasn't making shit as a staff member. And they knew I wasn't going to. But the promises were that I was going to make a living wage. Everything was going to be awesome. It was going to be the most incredible existence ever. And my parents are like, no, that's not how it is. And I just would not hear a word of it. Yeah, become an architect who believes in Xenu. Don't do the, you know, make some money. Basically. But but that's the thing. None of the staff seem to get paid. I mean, you hear the stories about people working, you know, 100-hour weeks for $42 and stuff like that. That's right. How do any of the staffers live? They have another job. I mean, I was on staff in Santa Barbara, California, for eight years before I – did the billion-year contract thing and went down to L.A. and was full-time in the Sea Org. So I worked 40 hours a week, 40 to 50 hours a week at the Church of Scientology in Santa Barbara, and then I worked another 40 hours at a regular job, job job, or I had two part-time jobs. I was always struggling working between jobs and, and getting jobs and stuff. So the, the steady thing was the 
was working for the church. So anything and anything I could get, you know, to keep the keep a roof over my head, pay the rent and stuff, I would do. Um, but I was always working. I was always working. And that that's how I supported myself. So how many years you got left on that contract? Oh, uh, gosh. Uh, um, 99, 999 million something, something, a lot of nines. In that number, you know, I worked for 17 years for on that when, I, when I signed with my publisher, I got a 10 year contract and all the other writers I know are like, oh, my God, they gave you a contract that was 10 years long. That's insane. That's crazy. What a yeah. great deal. The authors don't get 10 year contracts. You got a billion years, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. So what it was rough. a billion year contract then. I've never heard of that. Oh, oh. well, OK. Um, the inner core group of Scientology, the thing that really keeps it kind of going is the, called the Sea Organization, uh, S-E-A, the Sea as in the ocean. And this was Hubbard's paramilitary outfit that, that uh, Brian was alluding to, right, is the uniforms, the yes, sir, no, sir, how high, sir. Hubbard sort of fam- f- created his own paramilitary outfit, and that's the Sea Org. And they are the real fanatics of Scientology. They're the ones who will do anything to protect it. And I started working for the Sea Org when I was 25, and I did that for 17 years. I got out when I was 42. So the you know the the, the bulk of my professional life there was was uh, dedicated to this group. And the price of entry into the Sea Org is that you sign a a contract of commitment, and it's not a legally binding contract, obviously. It's just a it's just a piece of paper, but it says that you are dedicating your next billion years to the Church of Scientology and forwarding aims and goals of Scientology. Yeah, that's a B, people. Yeah. Billion. Billion years. And the idea is that, um, to put it in, in full context, and this doesn't make it make any more sense, it's just to explain what the hell people are thinking when they do something like that. Scientology is a is a religious philosophy that that whose basis is that you are a spiritual being and you've lived forever. You've never, you've been around in this universe for four quadrillion years, quadrillion. So that's billions, not much. That's a huge number. That's a bigger number than most people ever talk about. Most people just go up to billions. Very few people talk about quadrillion, but that's how long Hubbard said this whole universe has been around and you've been kicking around here. Life after life after life after life after life, billions and billions and billions of lives. And where has it gotten you to? Prison planet Earth, stuck in a body, stuck on this society, stuck in this planet, stuck in this rut. And nobody's going anywhere. Nobody knows anything. Nobody's doing anything. So why not turn? Why not flip the script on your existence and turn it all around? And what's it going to take to do that? Well, it's going to take a long ass time. So let's get to work, sign the contract, come on board full time. We'll feed you, we'll house you, we'll clothe you, and you work. And you work for Scientology, achieving its aims. And to me, at 25 years old, that seemed like the most responsible thing I could do with myself. Did you like the uniform? No. (laughs) Mainly because I only had two shirts and one pair of pants most of the time. It very... um... Like that was all I had, and I had to wear that seven days a week. And, but they did supply them. You didn't have to buy them, right? 
Uh, yeah, my two shirts and one pair of pants were supplied to me. And by the time the holes wore through on them and months had gone by, I was finally able to get another pair of pants allocated to me. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Oh, they're not very stylish either. No, they're not. They're trying so hard, but they suck. They, they It's so funny looking at Scientology from the outside in now. And remembering the headspace I used to be in and how full of ourselves we were and how they still are and how ridiculous the whole thing is. You know, it's so kind of sad. Well, I I feel bad for those people that they truly believe that they're saving the world. They truly believe they're doing good. The people in Scientology are not as a whole nefarious people. Mm-hmm. They're good people who think they're trying to save the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something a lot of people don't get. When a lot of people bash Scientology or any cult, they tend to bash the people in it. And I, I and I don't think that's 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 right because it's you a wrong target. Yeah. On target. Yeah. You believed you were doing good. That's right. You're doing, you're doing more good now, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. But, you know, but, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, you know, and that's kind of the thing is, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's a, that's a very accurate statement. And it applies to a lot more context than just Scientology. I mean, there's, you know, most of the evil that's done in the world, if we're really going to, you know, talk turkey is done by people who absolutely positively believe they are doing the right thing. Well, yeah, if you totally believe what you're doing is right, that no one can tell you it's wrong. And that leads to horrible, horrible things. Horrible things. Which is where people like you are so helpful because you don't only help the people escape uh, or to see what, you know, what's going on around them. You help their loved ones understand why they're there. And I want, I don't know if you could put it into words, but why that may be even more important. Why that? Why do I do that? No, why do you, you know, why it's even more important to. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, help the loved ones understand what's going on. Well, because that's the only way you're ever going to get them out. I mean, you know, if if people are not going to leave a, a, a destructive cult situation because they believe that it is their only support system and 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 they're and that the people there are their friends these are the only people who matter is the people that they're connected to and your fa- and the family and the old non-group friends they, they don't really matter as much they're not as important because they don't have the truth they're not part of this they don't have the secret sauce that you have and so for family it can be a big big struggle to deal with that and there's an awful lot of animosity that can build up because the cult members will tend to get rather high and mighty about it and be, you know, look down their nose at, at their family and talk down to them and tell them how stupid they are and stuff like that. And the family members will, of course, respond in kind or the family members will come out attacking guns blazing right from the get go. You know, oh, Scientology, that's the stupidest thing in the world. You'd have to be a moron to believe that stuff. Didn't you know about Shelley? Didn't you know about this? Didn't you know about that? And all that does is serve to get the person to double down on their belief and and believe even harder. That's psychology 101. So 
so for the family, it's especially important and the friends, especially important to know how to deal with somebody who's getting involved in something like that, some extremist kind of thing, whether it's QAnon or some other conspiracy thing or it's Scientology. And that is to be kind, to be understanding, to be loving, to care about them and demonstrate that. And if uh, if you don't do that, you're just going to drive them right into the the arms of the cult leader. And that's unfortunately, I just described exactly how my parents did that. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, and they were cult members. I mean, it's it's really, the, you know, the, the, the layers of this are really quite something. Yeah, it's the, the first thing they teach people in the QAnon thing is people that aren't on, in the know are going to tell you you're crazy. That's right. So sure. when they tell you you're crazy and wrong, just know that they don't know. Here's something that and I find what, funny. And what does the family do? It you're immediately crazy. tells them they're crazy. Yep. Therefore, QAnon obviously is right, you know. Here's something that I've noticed recently, and this is about the QAnon thing, which is such a big thing in America right now, actually all over the world now, but particularly in America, that I have friends that have gone down the Q rabbit hole and have become diehard Q people, and they spout Q stuff, and they post Q stuff, and they talk Q stuff, and when you call them out on being a QAnon person, they all say the same thing. What is this QAnon? I've never heard of QAnon. So are they QAnon or are they QAnon adjacent? They are, but they did, it's like they, they've learned this talking point to tell people that, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of this. Oh, that's now a strategy. I get it. Okay. Yeah, and I get that a lot lately oh, because obviously you've heard of it because it's all over every news channel. Right, right. Well, but again, you know, cults are, you know, the thing about the, the, trying to understand <laughs> – Trying to make sense or rationality out of people in a cult headspace is a very challenging endeavor. Oh, you want you want challenging endeavor. Lauren, are you ready for this? Lauren, Lauren, are you ready for this? Yes, I am. I don't know if you are, because you're going to watch Nerds Nerd Out. Because I want to give Chris a gift, because every show he does and everything he's on is about cults and destructive cults and these depressing issues. <laughs> and I happen to know he is an obsessive superhero movie guy. And I want to talk about what's going on in the world of superhero films. Chris, take off the conspiracy Scientology hat, put on the super nerd hat. Let's talk about what the hell is going on in this world with all these movies. Oh, my God. Um, okay, movie criticism. Here we go. Um, <laughs> I used to be a lot more avid of a fan. I'll put it that way, right? The MCU, Iron Man, that's my guy. I'm a hardcore Batman fanatic. I really am. Um, I, although, I, you know, I shouldn't use the word fanatic. I'm not quite that hardcore. But anyway, I really love that stuff. I really do. I always have. It's always from the time I was a kid, you know, the 50th anniversary of Batman and and uh, I, I remember Stephen King writing the intro to that comic. It was I, I've always just been a big, big, big supporter of that stuff. Um, and the movies really took off, haven't they? I mean, these franchises and then and unfortunately, now we're kind of entering the superhero exhaustion phase. You know, <laughs> phase four has kind of been I'm tired of this now. Can we do something different and unfortunately, it's because, you know, they've kind of like Star Wars, they kind of forgot their roots. You know, they went off into some other place. And 
I'm really sad to watch that happen. I know there's lots and lots of, you know, this is purely subjective, so this is all just my opinion, but I I really don't like the direction it's gone now because I think they've lost sight of the whole purpose of these, which are inspirational, heroic stories that are supposed to, you know, inspire, not tear down. And, I, and they've I, all become very formulaic. And God, yes. It, yeah. Lauren, oh, poor Lauren, used to manage a movie theater in Wales. Um, really? Um, yeah, I did. It's <laughs> awesome. I loved the movie since I was a kid. I, You know, I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark 17 times in the movie theater. So you couldn't afford that now. Oh, no, 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 no. I, but I, I was an avid movie yeah, guy as a as a kid, movie geek. I love it. And movies. Lauren, what happens to your love of films when Marvel movies come out and you run the theater? Oh no, the Marvel movies were fine because people used to dress up and there was one night there was a um midnight showing and there was two separate people dressed as one was dressed as Spider Man and one was dressed as Deadpool and our area manager was a big superhero film fan. And my and I wanted to impress him by getting these two people to hug just so I could take a picture. So because Deadpool always wants to be Spider-Man's best friend. So I thought I made it happen. <laughs> but uh-huh. I didn't manage it. There were too many people. <laughs> awesome. And I think I think I agree that we have sort of got superhero fatigue. And I think the last super superhero thing that I really enjoyed was One Division. And that was because of the way that it was tackling a big subject like grief. Well, you know, I enjoyed that aspect of that show. And I'll and, I, and maybe this might be a nice case study for me to talk about my problems with this, because then what happens at the very end? You know, we, we have a fascinating study in grief there and her dealing with that as a superhero. But then at the end. There's no moral payoff because she subjugates an entire town of people using all the stuff I talk about with very forceful measures to mind control these people. And at the end, she's the victim. She's the one we're supposed to feel sorry for. I was very taken aback by that. In fact, I was actually very upset about it uh, when, you know, the statement made is they'll never understand the sacrifices you made. And it's like. Are you kidding me? Why should they? You just subjugated <laughs> their minds for a couple of years, a month, months. I mean, how long did this go on? That was some of the worst story writing as a conclusion, as a third act I've ever seen. And all the stuff leading up to it truly was very interesting and very, you know, emotive and very like, oh, yeah, this is this is really rough for her. But then to get a pass. For all her wrongdoing, I was not okay with that. Lauren, rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. But then I, th- then I thought it might be interesting to sort of see if if she had manipulated the minds of the people in charge to sort of give her a free pass to get out of it. But then yeah, that had that to didn't be invented, though. Right? Well. They, they didn't really show that her doing that, like they did show very clearly her subjugating those people, you know. Yeah, and I, I, I thought that might come out in the Doctor. Str- I thought that might come out in the Doctor Strange film that the reason she got away was, yeah. but it didn't. And I thought that was. I think the best thing for me was Agatha. Agatha Harkness. <laughs> <laughs> have to have to say, least favorite character of that show for me. 
but that's me. You know, I, I just didn't see the, I, I didn't really see the point of her. And the, and like I said, it was a very disappointing third act for me on that one. Um, it, it had a lot of potential and I thought it was going in a, in a, in a direction that would make sense. And then suddenly they did this thing at the end that made it awful. And I just was flummoxed. And I think I even tweeted about it at the time. I was kind of like, what the hell did I just watch? It really shocked me, you know, and that was probably my first point of real departure, you know, from from a real philosophical point of view, like, oh, wait a minute, this is not OK. What you guys are doing is not right. This messaging is not OK, you know, and it's kind of only built on that kind of messaging ever since. It's been very, very poorly thought out stuff. And I'm I, I'm, I'm pretty disappointed in the direction it's all taken. Off topic. Just after Iron Man died. So, you know. He was holding it together. For, the more- for me, that's the true statement. I think for me, Iron Man was the guy holding it together. And when he died, I, a little bit of me died on the MCU. Well, too, my, nephews to too, my eldest nephew, I had to have a sit down and talk to him yeah. about, about it before it happened. because He loved it. No, they, they, he went to a character's breakfast one Christmas and he was totally invested that this fan was um, Iron Man. And he kept following him around and he was he must have been about five. And he's going, Mr. Stark, Mr. Stark, Tony, Tony. That's so cute. <laughs> that's, that's just like Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Tony Stark's character arc through the entire phase one through three of Marvel's, you know, of the MCU is the epitome of the superhero story arc. And it's, you know, it's, 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 it's ethics, it's redemption, it's heroic acts, it's, you know, it's redemption through action, not just through words or nice ideas or thoughts. It's actually putting yourself out there and being the hero. And if you have to make the ultimate sacrifice for the good of everybody, it's doing that. And that to me is what superheroes embody and personify. And when you make it something different than that because of current social values or trends, you're taking away from the eternal themes of what these stories represent. And that's where I think they've lost their way. If I'm being big no, critic they, here, you know, they've lost their way because they rely heavily on um, shaky cam, super fast fight scenes with no plot or anything behind them. It's just formula. Yeah. And the superheroes only stop stop fighting because their mums have the same name. <laughs> well, fair that, enough. That was the only reason they stopped fighting in Batman versus Superman was because their mother had the same name. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it was all a little silly. The, the DC thing is a whole nother take. My, my take on DC is very different from MCU, though. Um because it's so it was so heavily Zack Snyder, Ayn Rand influenced that it was kind of awful philosophically. I mean, he basically recreated Superman in Ayn Rand's image. And I, I really didn't like that. I, I thought, again, here's somebody who doesn't quite get what this is actually all about. And that was fine. In fact, that was fitting for the Watchmen. And and Snyder did a good job with that. But to take that alan moore attitude and bring it into the dc universe it's apples and oranges it's they're different messages and different purposes hey alan moore brought into the batman universe and he did pretty good with it 
No, I'm fine with that. And I'm fine with Batman. I'm fine That's, with what he did. But what Zack Snyder did is not. Of the Batman universe, Zack Snyder didn't. He didn't play by the rules. He tried to bring in other rules That's and right. fit Batman around that. But Alan Moore came in and was like, these are the rules of Batman, and I'm going to Alan Moore these rules. And that's how it worked. He still kept to the rules, but it was his take on the rules. Yeah, but the rules are, and as our last two weeks of episodes proved, there is but one Batman, and that is Adam West. <laughs> I, 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 have, I have other ideas on that, but fair enough. Let me say this about, about Batman before I forget. The great thing, truly – the incredible thing about Batman and that I think I think makes him a little different from so many from the way we have personified so many other superheroes is every version of him is Batman. Yeah. Everyone. They all fit. And that's what's kind of amazing about that character. As long as there's certain elements in place. It's Batman. And if you take away those elements, it's no longer Batman, right? You can't take the cape. You cannot. You can't take the ears. You can't take the symbol. You can't take the crime fighting, right? You can't take the reason he's doing the crime fighting. But everything else is infinitely malleable in that universe. And that's why Batman is timeless. You can't give him superpowers because Batman's a man, first and foremost. That's right. That's exactly right. Just like Superman has certain things. And when you take those away, he's no longer Superman. And that's what Zack Snyder did is he robbed Superman of Superman. And I was really not okay with that. It's the spit curl. If Superman doesn't have the spit curl in the front of his head, he's not Superman. (laughs) I was thinking a little bit more moral foundations, but fair enough. You were going the smart road. I was was thinking about, you know, that kind of thing. But you're you're right. The the, the curl is necessary, too. (laughs) I also now that I've given you a gift, letting you rant about superhero movies, which was necessary. I have to address the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. The most talked about thing from your last appearance Mm -hmm. that sent the audience into a tizzy. Oh, my. Admitted the Jedi were a cult. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course they are. I mean, it's the most obvious thing about them. That was the whole point of finding balance in the Force, was that they had become unbalanced. I mean, I don't even know that that's an arguable point. It seems baked into the entire story. But are they a destructive cult? They became that. You can be so good, you're bad. I mean, this was actually even uh, demonstrated uh, or or written in uh, Good Omens, that story uh, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman did, where heaven was so good they couldn't see beyond their own goodness. And that's that's a problem. And that's why Zero Fail um, freaked out when he had to go back, because when he did go back, he didn't recognize heaven. He was like, this has changed. That's right. Um, That's right. I do love Good Omens and I can't wait for the second series. I know, me too. It, it should be interesting. Brian. See, I didn't even have to warn Lauren about nerding out because Lauren will nerd out with the best of them. Yeah, have absolutely. you read Good Omens, Brian? I have not. You have to. It's amazing. I know, I know. I knew I was going to get yelled at for that, but I have not. Although I am so excited about Mando Season 3 in 14 days. Yay. I just miss Grogu. I'll admit it. I'm, I'm shallow. Me too. He's a cute I, I, I will join you in that shallow pool. I love 
I don't even call him Grogu. I still call him Baby Yoda. I can't help myself. I know he's not Yoda, but I just. I that's one of the funniest lines from uh, uh, Book of Boba Fett when Amy Sedaris sees Grogu. That's a terrible name. I know, right? What the hell kind of name is that? I, and, and there's still all the backstory mystery. Where the hell did this guy come from? What is he? Where? What? You know, there's so many questions unanswered. I'm I'm very much looking forward to the next season. See, here's the thing. Mandalorian is to me a return to the core of Star Wars. That's why it works. That's why it's a so hero's successful. journey. Yeah, and it's it's it it keeps itself in the Star Wars universe in the genre in which Star Wars was originally made. Star Wars was never social commentary. Star Wars is a Western adventure fantasy genre story, and it has rules when you're in that genre. And when you break them, you mess things up, and they messed up bad. You know, the prequels uh, didn't didn't go outside of that, but it was just such poor writing on Lucas's <laughs> it was like oh my god dude you didn't really you really needed an editor on this one i really wish you got a good editor you know with the original trilogy they kind of noticed he wasn't a very good writer and sort of um said why don't you just focus on directing we'll do the writing so you can focus on you know on the directing because you're an amazing director Yep, that's right. Well, actually, he was an amazing producer. I'll, 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 my, my take is the writing is necessary. You know, the story, the basic framework of the story was there, and he created that, and all the kudos to him for that. But who, you know, I think it's generally agreed in the fandom that Empire is the best. It, it certainly is in my book. That was not Lucas directed. That was Irving Kirshner, right? It was an experienced director who really brought some some good directing skills to a story that was worked over not only by Lucas, but I think Lawrence Kasdan was involved in that. Yes, yeah. And he's also the one who did Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know. Spielberg said something about his writing when they were working on Indiana Jones. I think he was very, very nice about it in a friendly way, but he said no. Like, it's a good idea, but you can't write. And I yeah. think it was, I think Steven Spielberg, I think it was along the lines of if, if George Lucas wrote, then Steven Spielberg didn't want to be part of it. <laughs> Interesting. Well, Raiders of the Lost Ark is definitely an amazing product, but it's not out of, it's it's really sort of story by Lucas, but the fine yeah. details by Kasdan and, and well done on Kasdan's part. The guy was an amazing writer. So that's where I go with the Star Wars stuff is, you know, the general big picture, the production of it, the vision of it. That's the producer. That's the, you know, I guess the director, at least for the initial movie, he definitely set the course and he very firmly established the genre of the stories. And people have tried, like with Star Trek, to make it more than that. And, you know, they really shouldn't. You know, that's my take on it. But I'm old school. I'm, you know, I'm I'm. I, I'm an old guy. What do I know? What you're excited about Bo-Katan coming in, kicking some ass in this season. Eh, we'll see. I, I, that's not <laughs> the exciting part for me, but I am curious to see where they're going to take all of this. I like Mando and I want to see Mando. That's what I want to see. And I want to see that guy kick more ass because he's a pretty ass kicking guy. I'm a little curious what he's going to do with that dark sword. I do not have in my own mind, the backstory of the animated series. I haven't watched them. So I don't have all that. 
Oh, see, that's the mistake they're making is they're putting their live action stuff too heavily dependent on knowing everything from 12 seasons of animated shows that adults aren't watching. Exactly. And if you didn't come up with it and I didn't, then I didn't watch them. And I don't know what to say. I, I I committed myself to a couple seasons of Clone Wars. It was okay. It wasn't. I mean, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't like, oh my god, I can't wait to find out what happens next. And so I'm not familiar with all those characters and all that lore. And it does bother me that I'm supposed to be in order to enjoy these shows. That that bugs me a lot. See, I am lucky that Sarah, uh, you know, my girlfriend is ultra nerd. And watches all that stuff and has read all the Star Wars books and novels and she knows old canon and current canon. Wow. No matter what happens, I can look at her and say, who the fuck is that? And she'll give me the whole backstory. So nice. So she knows the whole extended universe. Oh, the whole damn thing. Yeah, I, I just, you know, my time has gone in other directions. So I, I have enough time to, you know, show me a story, entertain me, you know, don't confuse me. And don't and don't lecture to me. I, I, I don't I don't need it. You know, the, I the Jedi I are a destructive mean. cult. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now, as far as the Jedi go. OK, so yeah, <laughs> clearly, clearly. I mean, isn't it obvious? It is to me. It just people were shocked to actually hear you say that because the Jedis are the keepers of peace for a thousand generations. Yeah, they were. But they kind of fell down on the job, you know, because they got so enamored with themselves that they lost sight of, uh, you know, they lost objectivity. And that's really, if you can call a cultic mindset anything, it's that. You lose objectivity. You lose perspective. And the Jedi lost perspective. They were so sure they were the good guys that they could never, ever question their own actions. And that's how the Sith played them like a like a deck of cards, you know, they just played them. That's what Star Wars messed up on with the, 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 the sequels, even towards the end of it or into the series, is that you get the impression that Yoda in his, you know, Dagobah hideaway for all these years realized that. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. knew we fucked up. Yep. They never explored that, that him explaining, hey, we were wrong. And they didn't have Luke explain that. They had him say it, but he didn't explain why. So people were like, why is Luke saying the Jedi should die and the Jedi? That's just so out of No, because Yoda was telling him, look, the Jedi are screwed. Well, exactly. I don't have a single kind word to say about Ryan Johnson or that <laughs> atrocity that he created because he didn't explain himself either. He did an incredibly, incredibly bad job of just corrupting the fuck out of the whole thing. Pardon my French. Oh, hey, that's I, this show. You could say it. Yeah, I really, really, really have big chips on my shoulder about that guy. And to this day, he's unapologetic about it. I think part of the problem with modern storytelling in MCU, some with DC and certainly in the Star Wars universe, is you have writers who are writing these characters who don't like them. They don't like these characters. They don't like these stories. They didn't grow up on them thinking they were good stories. They kept telling themselves, I can do better than this. And then they take the stories and they don't do better with them because they never understood them. And that's my big problem with where, you know, cinema has kind of taken these things these days. It's it's kind of sad to me because there's such amazing stuff there and there's so much potential for such amazing stories. There's so many places to go. 
And this is what the Mandalorian to me kind of represents is here's somebody, here's a couple people, Filoni and um, Favreau, who love this stuff. They love what it represents. They love what the meaning of the stories are and the themes of it. And they carry those themes forward. And that's what we see as different from what's in the Mandalorian compared to all this other nonsense, She-Hulk and all this other crap that's out there. You know, it's just nonsense. You know, it's funny you say that because I remember seeing an interview with Richard Donner once talking about making Superman. Mm. And how he didn't want to, you know, he never thought he was going to be a superhero action film kind of director. And when he was approached with it, he thought back to when he was a kid and what Superman meant to him as a kid. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to put that on the screen. And it worked. It worked like gangbusters. The original Superman movie, to me, is the dawn of the modern superhero movie. People take it a little later, but for me... It was Superman. And I remember very clearly being in the theater the very first time watching that movie and being absolutely blown away. And then Superman 2 came and it was even better. And that was hard to think about, you know, that a sequel could be better than the original. That was rare. And this and Superman 2 was absolutely blow away. And again, because it stayed true to the characters. And that's that's all you can do in those situations if you want to succeed. Yeah, I don't want to bash Tim Burton for what he did with Batman, but it was obvious he wasn't taking Batman in the direction of what Batman meant to him as a kid. That is true. That is true. He did. He did kind of popify Batman a little bit. But it's interesting because I have to give him massive kudos because he took the material seriously Mm-hmm. He, he treated it. The production values were for that time, 1989, uh, were amazing for a superhero movie. And their only real model in everybody's memory was Adam West. And then the comic books and the comic books. The real Batman, books. Adam West. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- there was, you know, there was clearly an awful lot of camp in the 89 Batman. And you go back and look at it. But we all. You know, at my at 19 years old watching that Batman, I was blown away. I, I and I've I've since you know changed my thinking about a few things, but the but the first impressions, the the what that story did for me, it didn't ridicule Batman, it didn't pull Batman down or make him an anti-hero or make him something he's not. It stayed true to all the elements. And again, with Batman, you've got a lot of freedom to do a lot of wild things with that character and still stay true to it. And and I think Burton did that, even if it wasn't everybody's cup of tea. It was still it was still a Batman with the integrity of Batman. And that matters. Yeah, he had the Batman motivated for the right reasons. He had the character development, the mentality right. I mean, he got that. It was just so different than what people had in their minds. That's right. Where I diverged from Burton was with the sequel. I hated the sequel. I could not stand it. He did, too. I don't think he wanted to do it. No, it was not good. And again, Batman was acting kind of out of character and a little weird and a little bit like, wait a minute, why is he doing that? It didn't make sense. You were questioning, you're like, what? He's doing what? 
And Selena Kyle was so obviously psychotic. It was like, why are you connecting with her? What the hell is going on? <laughs> it didn't really make any sense what they were doing. And that was what turned me off on that movie, you know, where, where 89 had been so good. The sequel was so bad. It's like the modern superhero films and TV shows. To, to, to borrow a term that's so common in wrestling, it's all sizzle but no steak. Yep. There's right. nothing to bite into. It's just we're going to wow you with effects and you're going to eat your popcorn and shut up and keep giving us your money. And we're going to give you the same story again. And you're going to shut up and eat your popcorn. And then we're going to give you a ninth Fast and Furious movie and you're going to uh, eat your popcorn and shut up. Right. That's right. That's it's the lowest common denominator stuff. And I, I, I you know. They keep doing it because clearly people keep paying for it. It's very discouraging that people do, especially when you get into that Fast and Furious crap. I, I haven't watched one of those since the first one. But, I, I, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, there's always the cheesy stuff. But I, 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 it's the people who bring, you know, fa the Fast and Furious isn't pretending to be anything more than it is, though. And I will give it that. Some of these guys have pretenses that they're doing stuff that they really are not doing and they think they are. And that's that's, again, where I kind of get into that social stuff and that kind of thing. I'm the first guy to line up for human rights, civil rights, equality under the law, everything. I, I preach that stuff all the time. But the heavy handed, you know, preachy stuff and, and the the changes made just for the sake of making changes and this it's. It's not necessary that the, the material is solid and it's in it and it can stand on its own two feet. You don't have to prop it up and you certainly don't have to hate it and covertly tear it down in the name of making content. And I think that's where we're where we've arrived at. Plus, it's escapism entertainment, right? We're trying to escape from all that stuff in our life that bothers us. Exactly. Just, you know. Give me the original Superman. I want Christopher Reeves fighting Gene Hackman. That's right. You know what? And I want it silly and I want it over the top and I want it goofy and I want it whatever. You know, I mean, nobody, I, you know, it's not like I watched Iron Man, the original Iron Man thinking, oh, yeah, this is all real. There's going to, you know, a guy could go create that suit tomorrow. I mean, obviously it was a fantasy story, but it was realistic enough that you could buy into it. You go, OK, all right, I'll well, go there. What worked with that film, and I remember when Iron Man came out, and I was already starting to get the sick of the superhero movies because every X-Men film had already come out. and all. Right, that's right. And then I went to see Iron Man because I had heard it's a superhero movie with almost no action. Mm. Go back and watch the first one. There's very little action in that movie because Favreau came in, who was known as a writer that did character development, not action. Then Hollywood said, oh, you made a billion dollars in the movie. We're going to give you all these action films to do. Well, he's not an action film director. He's a character developer. Exactly. And that's his strength. That's his superpower. So I, I've, I've got to go because it's getting to 11 o'clock here. Oh, oh. And I've got to get early, early for bed. So, no, you carry on. I'll just duck out if that's okay. All <laughs> right, Lauren. I will talk to you tomorrow, Lauren. Talk to you tomorrow. Good night. Good night. Bye. Um, you're bringing up an, amazing, an amazingly important point on this, right, which is it's all about the characters. If you can't write and develop a character that people care about, you have no business writing a story. And that's 
and that's exactly the heart of Iron Man. And it's why Iron Man worked is because they took the time to build a character that was not necessarily a really great guy, but he was still somebody you could connect with. And he was human and he had flaws and he had problems and there was problems in his reasoning and he made mistakes and there was a hero's journey where he had to eat those mistakes and eat that humble pie and come back and take care of it, of the consequences of his mistakes. And the action sequences, you know, fit within the framework of that story, not the other way around. And that's, you know, that seems to be your biggest problem with these things is they've sort of reversed priorities where it's all these big huge action sequences and and they and they and maybe some world building but they really really are perfunctory even with their character development and they they miss the point of storytelling when they when they do that yeah and maybe it's because i'm looking at it through the eyes of a 50 year old instead of a 15 year old you know I don't think there's really that big of a difference, though. We have more words to describe why we're upset with it, but I don't think the 15-year-olds are that impressed either. No, they're certainly not tuning in, and they're certainly not showing up to the theaters. Exactly, and they're about to have this Ant-Man movie come out, and I've already looked at some of the advanced previews or, or critic reviews on that, and it's just more of the same. So they probably just they probably just threw out another clunker. And this Flash movie is coming out, and it's supposed to be amazing, but it really looks like DC's version of Spider-Man No Way Home. and Which it they, probably is, because they're formula. Exactly. And then they just announced, you know, prior to the release of this thing, that their entire universe is changing and none of these characters are staying anyway. So why would anybody go watch this movie who cares about story continuity and, and world building? You know, well, They so don't. And it is possible to change a character, to to, to change a story narrative, and not be bad at it. A perfect Mm -hmm. example, the 1970s into the 80s Hulk TV series did not follow the storyline of the Hulk comic books or the origin, or even the character at all. And yet it's probably still one of the best and most loved superhero representations ever done. That's right, because it was, uh, again, a struggle, a human story first. and and a hero's journey and, you know, and heroic things happened, even with this monstrous figure, you know, a doc- it was really a kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde inspired story. And um, and yet he's still doing good in the world and is still the misunderstood hero. And there's a lot of things people can connect with in those story hooks. You know, there's a lot of things people can connect with. They can't connect with the stuff that's being thrown on the screen now. There's no. You know, they keep talking about representation, but they don't represent anybody. And that's what's so stupid about this stuff is you're trying so hard to do something. You're trying to fix a problem that never really existed. And that's kind of the problem with what their modern versions of these things are. Well, you know, I think the problem and and I hate dropping names to do it, but uh, it's the Michael Bay syndrome. You know, Michael Bay was a guy who could make explosions on screen who thought he was fucking Igmar Bergman. But he's (laughs) not. He makes explosions. That's right. But again, and even he. um, Not a great storyteller at all. Right. Obviously, he's making movies for himself as a 15 year old and he owns that. He literally says that out loud. He says, look. I'm making movies for 15-year-olds. If you guys are going deeper than that with my movies, you're the problem because that's not what I'm trying to do. 
So good on him for being crystal clear about what he's trying to do. But the only time Michael Bay actually succeeds is when writers manage to slip in all the good story elements anyway. You know, like the only reason the first Transformers worked wasn't because of the amazing special effects. And they were truly amazing. It was that the characters were people who mattered and you could relate to. Shia LaBeouf's character was a normal teenager. You were like, yep, I get this guy. You know, so I think uh, the the irony of it is hmm. uh, someone like James Cameron gets all this credit for world building and, and really tapping into something important. And all he's really doing is fucking with technology. I'm inventing new cameras and new ways to film things and new ways to show things. And I'll steal stories and rewrite them to fit something just to show off my new technology. He's more about the technology. People try to read too much into his work. I think you're I think you're absolutely right. The reason Cameron stories work is because they are basic. Mm -hmm. They're fundamental stories of struggle. And everybody can connect with that. And the and Cameron's gift is that he's not thinking to himself that he's doing something different than what he's actually doing. No, his gift is that he is a brilliant innovator when it comes to technology. That's right. And, you know, like the first avatar, I remember going to see it because I wanted to see these new cameras. He invented this new style of filming and I'm watching going, Oh, it's dances with wolves with blue people. That's right. That's all it was. I mean, some of the dialogue was even taken and I don't think Cameron would have denied that. People no, try that's what I mean. too much into it. He's no, like, that's what he's doing. He knows exactly like, what he's doing. The yeah. aliens was inspired. Yes. That was inspired work. Terminator was inspired work. Simple stuff in terms of plot structure, formula of the story. Not complicated, but not trying to be and not having pretensions of being. Just here's the story. Let's tell it in the best possible way we can. Yep. You know, within the budget that we have, the time that he tried to go big and and ended up going home was with Abyss, right? With the Abyss, it was like magnificent production values, but the story sucked, and so the movie kind of didn't really go where uh, he wanted it to go because he was trying to do big messaging, you know. And then he returns to his, you know, to a more simple structure with Titanic. Uh, Maybe there was, you know, there was, oh, True Lies even. True Lies was another great one, right? Simple story, family values, husband, wife, love, you know, and we're going to put this into a spy story. And it worked. It was, you know, it was very, it was, it was all his strengths, none of his real weaknesses. And that's, that's where Cameron shines is when he goes basic on the story and big on the production and he wows people with it and, and good on him. He's, he's, he's probably the one of the most, if not the most successful you know, story directing, you know, directors who's ever lived because he knows his strengths and he plays to them. And he understands the technology of the business like a Georges Millet did at the turn of the last century. I agree. He will change the way film is made. Yeah. He has. That's right. That's right. And I, I think that's his goal. That's Spielberg, you know. Spielberg's kind of kind of not so dissimilar there. You know, I mean, nobody can nobody can necessarily say Spielberg is suffering from, you know, complex plot trauma or problems. Right. I mean, he's his stories are pretty basic, but they are told in the most human, most emotionally impactful ways. No one does it like Spielberg, especially in 1941. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, 
I love that movie. Oh, I, 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 that, 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 I think it flopped for a reason, but I think but it's you, wonderful. You go all the way back to his earlier stuff, Duel, Jaws, Close Encounters. Oh, don't say Duel. Duel scares the shit out of my mother to this day. Yes, exactly, because Spielberg understands the mechanics of filmmaking and emotional manipulation at a level that, that many directors don't. See, isn't nerding out fun? Don't oh, you miss stuff. being able to do this? Ah, love this stuff. Yeah, I never get a chance to do this, so this is fun. Yeah, see, I, you know, I, I'm a David Lynch fanatic. I love everything he's done, right. but I don't think I would. I don't think we would get along sitting somewhere because he's kind of flake. Whereas, you know, some of these filmmakers, I think I'd have a good conversation and a fun time with. Absolutely, I would. I would. Yeah, I don't know what I would give, but a lot. To be able to have an afternoon with Steven Spielberg, that would be amazing. With Spielberg? Oh yeah, and or Favreau or you know Cameron or you know there's a number of people I would love to spend some quality time with. <laughs> couple couple weeks ago, about a month ago on the show, I had Dave Thomas, the legendary comedian and director and yeah. actor from SCTV, yeah. and it was so funny talking to him because we're just sitting here talking like this about getting his American citizenship. And he's like, yeah, and when you're in the arts, you need to have people in the arts write letters for you. So, you know, I had to submit letters from Steven Spielberg. And I'm like, how many people could just say, hey, hey, Steve, can you write me a letter of recommendation? <laughs> and he says it so nonchalantly, which gives you the idea that that Spielberg's just a regular down-to-earth dude. Exactly. Well, they all are behind the scenes. I mean, they're just people. Yeah. They're just people. Well, not all of them. <laughs> what do you mean? I uh, my first job was uh, worked in the entertainment field, um, oh. with musicians and stuff. Some of the people are the greatest people you would ever meet in the world. Sixteen years old, I'm working a Willie Nelson concert. One of the biggest superstars in the world. Mm -hmm. My boss and me got in a fight that day. So when everybody on the crew, because you're working from like five in the morning till two the next morning, when everybody on the crew got to break for dinner, I got stuck with the job of crawling around the stage and in the orchestra pit in my hands and knees, taping down all the cables. So I'm sitting in this empty theater dome. It was a theater in the round. No one in the building but me patching these cables. Door opens up, but I don't even bother looking. I figure it's a lighting technician or something. Then I start hearing a guitar playing, and I peek my head out of the orchestra pit, and there's Willie Nelson by himself on stage just playing his guitar. He catches me out of the corner of his eye, turns around, stops playing, and goes, oh, excuse me, I'm not bothering you, am I? You don't mind if I play a little, do you? That's how down-to-earth he is. That's, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Up to the same year. These are, this was back in the day where monitors on stage, JBL monitors were these like 200-pound massive pieces of equipment. And one of them on the stage was not working. I, being the biggest guy in the crew, had to run into the back to get another one and run back down to the theater holding this piece of equipment. As I'm running through the back, the performer that night sees me, Diana Ross, and starts screaming, Who the hell let this piss on in my presence? How dare he even be in my presence? So that's the difference. They're not all down to earth. Totally hear you on that one. Totally hear you. Yeah, I think we better wrap this up because, you know, I get you talking. I go way over time every time because 
You're one of my favorite people in the world, and I hardly ever get to talk to you. Well, thank you. Thank you very so, much. This is always Go ahead. Give us some details. I'm going to put the link to your your website and the YouTube channel in the description of the show, but go on. Give the people out there any information, anything you want to pitch. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, well, listen, um, if you're interested in cults, coercive control, brainwashing, you know, cults, all that kind of crap – my channel is the place to go. I've got an extensive library of information for you that can help, can educate, can inform, and can entertain at the same time. And that's my only goal is to try to, uh, you know, bring some sense and sensibility to the world as best I can. And in a way, you know, it's not a mission. It's not my, you know, thing. But it is the least I can do considering I spent decades in a destructive cult, you know, uh, hurting people. So, that's kind of what I do now, and uh, that's reflected in my channel. I've written a book about Scientology, if you're interested in that as a topic. It is a critical analysis of it. It's called Scientology A to Zenu, uh, an insider's guide to what Scientology is all about, and uh, and it will give you all the skinny. And so I highly recommend you check that out. That's on Amazon. And uh, I have a weekly podcast. I have a weekly Q&A show, and we do a live call-in show every Friday night. So you can catch all of that on my YouTube channel. And don't send in prank phone calls. Don't call up go, how dare you say the Jedi are a cult, you motherfucker? You know, don't, none of that. Uh, ha ha. Yes, don't do that. Uh, no, don't do that. Chris, it is so wonderful to talk to you. It's such an honor and it's such a pleasure. And I hope we can talk again soon. Awesome, man. Absolutely. Talk to all you right. Soon. Take it easy. All right, I'd like to thank Chris Shelton once again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Lauren and Swansea, this is Brian and Buffalo saying good night. But what's the perfect gift for Mother's Day? Say I love you with a bathroom buddy.